from Palestine. Another pastor and I are tentatively planning to lead a tour to the Holy Land in the spring of 1989. The Lord doesn't come before then, and I hope he does. But uh, looking forward to that opportunity to see, once again, those places which we have all read and studied all of our lives. Tonight we're going to open our Bibles to the book of the Revelation and the 19th chapter. Our world is on a collision course with the judgment of God. There is a sense in the hearts of many, many people that the world cannot go on as it is now. That is true morally. It is true economically. It is true agriculturally. It is true socially. Our world is running out of time. Kenny King and I were chatting before the service tonight, and he made the statement, and I fully agree with him, that the hour is much later than most of us realize. The end of the age is quickly, quickly coming upon us. The Bible predicted centuries ago many of those things that are taking place in our day. Do you realize how much the Bible says regarding this truth that we begin studying tonight in the coming kingdom? In the Old Testament, there are eight verses to one that speak of the second coming of Christ as compared to his first coming. Eight times as many verses speak to Christ's return to the earth and the establishment of his kingdom as speak to his coming at Bethlehem and his work on the cross. In the New Testament, one out of every 25 verses deals with the theme of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to this topic, we are not coming to a topic that is uh, strange to the Bible or that's difficult to find in the Bible. It's everywhere, woven into the fabric of the Word of God. Our theme in this mini-series will be the coming kingdom. Tonight we want to look at the return of the king. The next time, the Lord willing, we will look at the retribution of the king, and then beyond that, the reign of the king. But tonight, the return of the king. There are several false teachings about Jesus coming again that I want to mention briefly because occasionally you'll pick up a book that mentions one of these ideas as the fulfillment of his second coming. There are those who teach that Jesus comes again at death, that that is the fulfillment of his second coming. Now it is a blessed truth that when we die we go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with Him. And there may be some sense in which our Lord comes to receive 
the believer at that moment of death. I shared with you some time ago the story that Hugo Hegstrom, one of our members, shared with me about his mother and how that on her deathbed, as she was dying, she suddenly regained strength and sat up in bed and said, The Lord is coming! The Lord is coming! And then slumped and was gone. So there may be some truth in that, that the Lord comes to receive his own to himself at the moment of death. D.L. Moody said, Earth recedes, heaven opens, God calls. And with that, he entered the Lord's presence. As wonderful as that truth is, it does not fulfill, however, the promise of Christ's return to earth. There are several contrasts between death and Christ's return. Death, for example, is called the last enemy. The last enemy that shall be destroyed or abolished. Heaven, his return, is called the blessed hope. That's a contrast. Death is such that it leaves the body in the grave. But the return of Jesus Christ will see the body raised from the grave. There's a contrast between the two. At death, the spirit goes to be with Christ. But at his return, he comes for the believer to take the believer home. And so we do not accept the teaching that says that the return of Jesus Christ is fulfilled in his coming for the believer at the moment of death. And then there are those who say that the second coming of Christ is fulfilled when he came again at Pentecost. Now it is true that Jesus said that he would be with his own always, even to the end of the age. He said, I will not leave you comfortless, or or, yes, comfortless as orphans. He said, I will come to you. He promised another comforter who would be like him. But that is not the fulfillment of the second coming. Our Lord came spiritually at Pentecost in the person of the Holy Spirit. But that is not the fulfillment of his return to the earth. Even after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, the Lord Jesus Christ was still in heaven. Do you recall Stephen's statement at the moment of his death? He said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw Jesus in heaven. Jesus hadn't returned at Pentecost, although he came in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the epistles of the New Testament were penned after Pentecost. And yet in those very epistles, we have so very many promises of his coming again. And so Pentecost is not the fulfillment of the second coming. And then there are those who teach us that he comes again at our salvation. That when we trust Christ, that he comes again to us. Now once again, in a sense that is true, that is in the sense that at the moment of our salvation, Christ is in us as the hope of glory. The apostle said, Christ lives in me. But he lives in us again in the person of the Holy Spirit. That that truth does not replace the promise of his return to the earth. Tonight we want to look at the return of the king. It is a future event. 
It will occur at a time when the preparations in heaven will have been completed. We have dealt with some of those preparations. Previous to his return to the earth, he will have come to call the church home in the rapture. And there in heaven we, the Lord's people of this age, will be examined at the bema, at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we will be married to the Lord in a wonderful ceremony to be consummated by the married supper of the Lamb. During that same period of time, there will be tremendous judgments poured out upon the earth. All of the preparations in heaven will have been completed, and the situation on earth will be ripe for his return. Wickedness will increase. The Antichrist will rule and bring terror to the people of God as he seeks to persecute them. He will gather together the armies of the world to do battle in Palestine, in the valley of Megiddo, or Armageddon. The situation on earth will be ripe, and at that moment our Lord will return. Here in Revelation 19, we read about that. It says in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened. This is the second time in Revelation that has happened. It happened in chapter 4, verse 1. When a door was opened in heaven and John was told, Come up here. And he went into the presence of the Lord and received the remarkable revelation that we have been looking at here in in the book of the Revelation as we call it. And here again, heaven is opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Do not be mistaken, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 3.14, that same term is used of him, faithful and true. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood." For an interesting reference, cross-reference for that, look sometime at Isaiah chapter 63, where the Messiah is pictured as coming in robes that are spotted with blood, the blood of his enemies. And that is the picture that is drawn upon here. His robe is, as it were, dipped in blood because of the warfare with his enemies. And his name is called the Word of God, the Logos of God. There can be no question as to whom John has in mind as he writes these words. The Word of God is his favorite name for Jesus in the Gospel of John. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen. My understanding of that is that it refers to those mentioned earlier in verse 8 of the same chapter. We've studied that. It is us. It is we, I should say. We who are the Lord's people. We are the armies that are pictured here in fine linen, which represents righteousness. White and clean, he further describes the linen. And the army were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword 
so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Again, sometime look at Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14, and understand that this winepress is a picture. It is a symbol of the wrath of God being poured out upon the world in that day. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'd like for you to think with me tonight about three purposes for the return of Jesus Christ that we read about in this passage. Purpose number one, he comes to destroy the Antichrist and his armies. We read here of the warfare that is involved in his return to the earth. It further says in verse 19, And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Those are the birds mentioned in verses 17 and 18. This is not a very pretty picture. Indeed, it is a day of great calamity and death upon the earth. There has never been a day like this day. You go to the greatest battles that have ever been fought on the face of the earth, and you cannot find a battle to compare with that day when Jesus Christ fights with his army against Antichrist and his armies. Napoleon, upon seeing the great field at Megiddo, the great valley that stretches before one at that place, said, what a perfect place for the armies of the world to fight. I do not know whether he was aware of the prophetic scriptures regarding that very subject, but he was right. And it is at that place that this battle will take place. This destruction of Antichrist is further described in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8. In fact, in every text where the Antichrist is mentioned in the New Testament, there is a word at that same place regarding his destruction by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first purpose of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is to destroy the Antichrist and the armies of the world. But there is a second purpose for his return, and that is that he might save his people from persecution and death. Would you turn please to Matthew chapter 24? The Lord Jesus Christ gives us an extended teaching in this sermon regarding those days of his return to the earth. 
He says in verse 22, Unless those days, what days? The days of the tribulation that he has just been talking about. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those are his people, Jews and Gentiles, for the sake of the elect, that is, those who are saved in the tribulation period, for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. The pressure in the days of the tribulation from evil and iniquity will be unbelievable. And the Word of God makes it clear that unless those days had by God's sovereign choice been cut short, it would have ended up with the death, the annihilation of the entire human race. What happens at that moment when he comes, when the elect are spared and saved? Well, in verse 31, he says, And he, the Son of Man who comes in great glory, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Some say, oh, well, there's the rapture of the church. Not so. This is not a word regarding the rapture of the church. If it were, then in what sense could the Apostle Paul have used the word mystery when referring to the rapture of the church? The word mystery means something that has not been revealed until that point. The Lord Jesus is talking about his return to the earth. And there will be at that time a gathering together of the elect from all over the earth. There will be the sound of a trumpet involved in that and angelic forces. In some means, they will go out to the four winds, that is, to the four directions of the earth. And from one end of the sky to the other, they will bring together the Lord's elect, the Lord's people who have been saved in that tribulation period. Now, many of them will have been martyred. A great multitude is seen in the book of Revelation as having died because of the persecution of the Antichrist. But there will be many who will be alive physically in that day when he comes again to the earth. And it is they who will be gathered together and spared from further persecution and certain death at the hand of Antichrist. This is a promise that God gives to the Jewish people in particular. I invite you to turn to the Old Testament briefly with me to the book of Zechariah. Now, if you don't know where Zechariah is, you can look it up in the contents, or you can go to Matthew and put it in reverse, and you'll get there pretty quick. We're going to look first in Zechariah chapter 12. Here we have a word from God regarding his concern and care for the people of Israel. And he says in verse 10, well, let's back up to verse 8. In that day, what day is that? The day of his return. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day 
that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That is the purpose that Antichrist gathered these armies initially. He is marching on Israel. He is coming against the Holy Land when suddenly the Lord appears in heaven. And the attention, of course, of the armies is diverted at that point to that heavenly army. But the nations of the world will come together to do battle in Israel, to destroy Jerusalem. And the Lord promises that he will in that day destroy those nations that come together against Jerusalem. And he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for me as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. He is speaking about that day when he returns visibly, gloriously, bodily to stand on the Mount of Olives. The prophecy through Zechariah is that on that day there will be poured upon the people of Israel the spirit of grace and of supplication, and there will be a repentance in that day for their rejection of their Messiah. The Lord says, They will look on me whom they have pierced. Can there be any mistake as to the person who is involved here? The one with the pierced hands and feet and side? And on that day they will mourn like they have mourned at no other time. He compares it to a situation in verse 11 back in the history of Israel when good king Josiah was killed in battle because of his own foolishness. He was beloved by the people. He had begun reigning as a boy and had reigned for some 36 or 38 years. The people practically worshipped King Josiah because he was such a godly man, had brought reform to the nation, and revival had come under him. But he made a foolish mistake in going out against the Pharaoh of Egypt when he didn't have to. And uh, apparently God sent him a message, don't go out. He went out anyway. And it says that an archer, by chance, shot an arrow that hit him, and he died as a result of that battle. And the people of Judah were absolutely shattered. There was tremendous mourning because of the death of this young man, uh, a John Kennedy kind of a figure to the people of uh, Judah in that day. And the writer of Scripture here, Zechariah, says, the mourning on that day when Jesus comes back, when he is seen, by the people of Jerusalem. That morning can only be compared, he says, to what happened back there in ancient history. He will come back to redeem, or to rescue, rather, his people who are in persecution. Turn over to chapter 14 of Zechariah. Again, we read about this same day. He says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. In other words, you'll receive back what the enemy has taken, he says to the Jewish people. 
For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. He's describing here the event that will take place when Jesus returns and actually touches the Mount of Olives from where he went back to heaven. The Mount of Olives will split in two and a great valley will appear at that point. Tremendous earthquake apparently will take place. Seismologists tell us that that fault is there below the Mount of Olives for this to happen. The whole topography of that part of Palestine, it seems, is going to be changed as a result of the upheaval of the earth and the splitting of it at the Mount of Olives when the feet of Jesus touch that mountain. Now why is all of this happening? So that the Lord may rescue his people who are obviously in danger of death. But then he comes also, thirdly and finally, to restore Israel to her place of theocratic prominence. That is, he comes to restore to Israel the promise of the kingdom. We can go ahead and read about it here in Zechariah 14. When it speaks about his being the king, for example, in verse 16, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booze. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booze. Uh, we do not have time to go into the details regarding that particular feast of the Old Testament, but read about it in Leviticus 23. That feast symbolically, typically pictures the kingdom, the millennial reign of the Messiah. And during his reign on the earth, when he is the king reigning on the earth, that feast will be reinstituted and all of the nations of the world are commanded to to observe that particular feast, and if they do not, they are punished from the Lord. It says in verse 20, In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar, and every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts, in that day. Canaanite here seems to refer to those who are wicked and unbelievers, disobedient people. And he says in that day, disobedience and wickedness will be suppressed. 
Well, what he is describing here in these words, and we've only read a few of the words, notice verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. In just a few verses here that we've selected, we have seen that our Lord is coming back not only to punish Antichrist, to destroy his armies, not just to save his people from persecution and death, but to establish his kingdom on the earth, that he might reign over all the nations. Now, as we look to the future, there are three attitudes that we can have. Dr. Wilbur Smith says this. He says there are three possible attitudes. There's indifference, there's fear, and there's hope. The first, indifference, is unintelligent. One cannot look to the future with indifference and be considered intelligent. Not even an unbeliever can be considered smart. If he looks at the future and the situation the world is in today and is absolutely indifferent about it, that's unintelligent. Fear. Well, that's unnecessary. It's unnecessary to look at the future with fear and dread, for the Lord is in control. The third hope. That's available for anyone. The Lord wants us to place our faith in Him, our trust in His Word. And in a day when there are many questions and a lot of uncertainty regarding the future, you and I know what direction history is moving. It is moving toward the return of Jesus Christ, his return to the earth to reign. Now, the next time that we study in this series, we're going to talk about the retribution of the king. There are some things that our Lord will do immediately upon his return to the earth by way of judgment. For right now, would you take your hymnal, please? And turn with me to just a chorus that is written. I think that this is a chorus from an old hymn. I can't remember the verse now, but if I did, I wouldn't sing it anyway. But I'd like you to sing just this chorus, number 255, He is coming again. This very same Jesus rejected of men. On that day when he went up from the Mount of Olives... The angel said to those gathered disciples, This same Jesus that you have seen taken up from you into heaven shall so come again in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. On the day that we've studied about when he returns, he will come with clouds, with great glory, and he will return to the Mount of Olives, to that place that he last left. And the people of Israel who have not seen him since before his resurrection, before his death, the last time the people of Israel as a nation saw him was when he died on the cross. In his resurrection glory, he appeared only to believers, but on that day when he returns to the earth, he will be visible to all. And the spirit of grace and of supplication we poured out upon the Jewish people on that day that they might receive him as their king. Well, this is talking about that verse in Acts 111. He is coming again. Would you stand with me as we sing together, 255.
He is coming again, He is coming again, the very same Jesus rejected of man. He is coming again, He is coming again, with power and great glory. My friend, if you're here tonight and the thought of His coming again fills you with fear because you're not prepared to meet the Lord, and that's not a hope for you, it's a dread, may I encourage you tonight to seek me out or one of our staff members because we'd like to sit down and talk with you about your salvation and how you can have that as your hope. And you need not be afraid, but trust. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, we bless you tonight for your saving work. For your first coming when you identified with us in every way possible. And went to the cross and bore our sins. And then you were raised from the dead gloriously. We bless you that now you have ascended to the right hand of the Father, that you reign in heaven. We anticipate this day of your second advent. We who are your people now in this age look forward to the rapture when we shall be caught away to be with you. But we even look beyond that blessed hope of ours to that day when you will come back to the earth and establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice. And we pray for that day. And we pray your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth, even as it is right now in heaven. And may the anticipation of your return stimulate us to godliness and to good deeds. And may we be faithful ambassadors of the King. And we pray this in your blessed name. Amen. Good night.